FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you for joining us as we begin another week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Got a lot to talk with the panel about, so we want to get right to them. It's Monday, which means that my partner on the show today, Jim Galloway, who, uh, as you all know, formerly uh, served as the political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and uh, now continues to do some writing. Uh, If you follow me on Twitter, I tweeted out a wonderful story that Jim wrote about Max Cleland uh, in the paper last week, Um, and and I really recommend it to all of you. And Jim, you wrote about it in the context of something you did in your wood workshop. Some people know if they listen to the show that you are devoted to woodworking. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a a, a small box, a, a chest, a small chest really, uh, made out of uh, Max's old bed, uh, one that I helped swap out uh, back about four years mm-hmm. ago, uh, and it was uh, it, uh, it, it it was it was cathartic, you know, in a season where you can't where you can't uh, where, where where you're not where large public gatherings weren't allowed, we still haven't had a, a long goodbye to to to, to Max yet. Yeah. This was a way, my way of saying so. And and it's, uh, if you, I'm at uh, Nigat B on Twitter. If you want to, you'll find a link to it there. Um, Jim and, and Max Cleland were very close friends, especially in the final years of his life as his health started fading. Um, Audrey Haynes is back with us, professor of political science at the University of Georgia and the director of the Applied Politics Program, which uh, prepares students for careers in politics. Audrey. We appreciate your joining us today. You had a bad cold over the weekend, and yet here you are. Thank you for being here. <laughs> oh, glad to be here. I, I never want to miss an opportunity to have a conversation with people on this panel. Yeah, this is a good group because we're also joined by Fred Smith, professor of constitutional law at Emory University. And Fred, I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing your thoughts, of course, uh, when we get to the section of the show, we're going to talk a bit about what uh, Judge Jackson's elevation to the court is going to mean uh, uh, moving forward. How are you, Fred? I'm great. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Okay, let's start with um, the uh, lawsuit that's finally going to be heard in federal court today, Jim. Uh, Judge Steve Jones will hear a case brought by Fair Fight Action, which alleges there were illegal obstacles to voting put in place uh, uh, during the 2018 election, and um, although a number of the charges uh, were already dismissed last year, or a number of the allegations, uh, there are still several pending issues that Fair Fight Action believes cost, particularly minority voters, uh, their right to cast uh, ballots. Um, so, Jim, first of all, it's interesting. This case goes back almost four years um, and is finally coming to court as we get set for the 2022 election, Jim. Right, right. Yeah, uh, uh, the Abrams organization filed it, filed this lawsuit uh, within weeks of, of her defeat in the in the in the 2018 gubernatorial race, uh, 
and I, I, it, it's it, it coincidentally, yes, it's it's going to be it's going to be decided w- within the most heated period of the of of the twenty twenty race for governor. Uh, Stacey Abrams is already the the uh, the the presumptive Democratic nominee. She has no challengers in that party. Uh, Brian Kemp looks strong to finish uh, in in the in the in the May twenty fourth primary, or or if 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 he has bad luck in the in the runoff to follow. <clears throat> so so it'll be it's it, it's going to be and the fact that it's before a, a a just a single judge. This is not a jury. This is not a jury trial. I think that means that it's going to move a whole lot faster, and it's more likely to be fodder in the uh, in, in the upcoming campaign. Yeah, um, Audrey, so here are the issues that still remain. Um, uh, Fair Fight is challenging exact match. Uh, They say that it was used in uh, a way to uh, eliminate especially African-American voters, that if you got um, an initial wrong, if you made some minor uh, error in how your registration form compares to what's on file for you, um, your, uh, your registration was thrown out. And Fair Fight says that, 47,000 registrations were put on hold before the 2018 election, and 70% of them were black. So they're challenging the whole concept of exact match, Audrey. Yes, and that is accurate. They had a very good um, uh, uh, witness, a special uh, witness that came in and talked about that, Dr. Ken Mayer. And, you know, the evidence, um, you know, does seem to suggest that there is a, a distinct a bias that comes in with that, whether it is um, structural or, you know, related to, um, you know, other factors. But let me just uh, say one thing in context. I went through and read, you know, all of the um, the uh, findings uh, of the judge and went through. And I think it's important to uh, say something about Steve Jones as a judge who's looking at this case. One thing that we would say is that he's been very deliberate. When you read through the content of all of his, um, you know, decision making, it's highly focused on um, president, but it also looks at broader issues. And uh, after paring down the case and uh, in terms of what they're looking at right now, these are areas where there are real issues. Um, I would argue, too, that use it or lose it is a real issue. But um, the Supreme Court direction there, which he took, you know, really didn't open up much for pursuing that in the arena of this case. But um, he is a very. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You're right that that use it or lose it is not going to end up being part of this case. Um, And and there are many people who feel it was one of the most important uh, issues uh, from uh, uh, canceling people's registration. Uh, Fred. Uh, absentee ballot cancellation is also part of this uh, case as well, as is citizenship verification. If if your driver's license information wasn't updated when you became a citizen, you were challenged at the polls and had to get a provisional uh, ballot. And the same with absentee ballot cancellation. If you'd applied for an absentee ballot but decided to vote in person instead, uh, uh, Fair Fight says there were uh, many cases in which people were not allowed to vote in person. They, too, had to, provide, had to file uh, uh, provisional ballots. Fred? Sure. And what they're seeking on that score is training uh, of election workers so that um, the way that those issues are treated across the state um, are consistent. Um, and across all of the claims, uh, they're arguing that, um, that there's a violation of the constitutional right to vote 
that there's a violation of um, the 15th Amendment um, and uh, that there's a violation uh, of uh, equal protection, actually, and one more, and that there's a violation, and in some ways this is the most important, of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, because Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act not only looks to whether or not there's an intent to discriminate um, on the basis of race, it also, under some circumstances, uh, will allow uh, something to be invalidated uh, because it has that effect. And, and the exact match numbers in particular um, that are in the district court's uh, opinion um, it really do raise a lot of questions. I mean, the idea that uh, 76 percent of people who um, were um, who were put into this questionable status um, were racial minorities, even though uh, racial minorities constitute 37 percent of voters in the state, uh, and the fact that almost 70 percent of them were black. Um, you know, so the, so the court's going to be looking for um, you know for, for some sort of explanation for why that's that's the case, and so they're going to look to the what the state's interest here is, um, but it's going to compare it against that considerable uh, burden. Uh, and and so in the, what the district court did is it used the Supreme Court's most recent guidance about what Section Two uh, has said uh, and worked through very methodically uh, to say that you know that this is something that deserves. Uh, full hearing. Uh, Fred, I'm not sure what the remedy is here. So if they win this case, what's the remedy? Yeah, so presumably for for different um, claims, the remedy might be different. Um, so for some of them, it's about training. Um, for the exact for the exact match one, um, it's hard to imagine any sort of remedy short of either eliminating it or having an injunction that that itself um, significantly. Um, uh, reformed it. Um, Audrey, were you want to weigh in real quickly on that? Yes. Well, I was going to say that, you know, exact match is not very old in terms of being applied to the states. I mean, it came out of the Help America um, Act. And, you know, under the Help America Act, it asked the states to come up with some means of, you know, making sure they had correct identification. And exact match was something that people came up with. And one thing about the federal law it doesn't say anything about consequences. Like, there's no, there shouldn't be any punishment for it. Um, but in our state, we made it so that you had to have exact match. And then, you know, we got in trouble initially. And then we, we met preclearance through saying, okay, well, if it's not an exact match, we're going to inform them and give them a chance to respond to it. So, you know, that seemed to open up the ability to utilize exact match. So it's pretty complicated. And, you know, in terms of a remedy, um, you know, either eliminating the fact that you have to change that or, you know, extending the period or, you know, it, it's more complicated than people understand. But it does have a real effect. So, um, Jim Galloway already talked a little bit about the political implications of this case being heard right now and the fact that it'll be decided well in advance of the election. I want to talk a little more about that in just a moment. But... We are having a pledge drive at Georgia Public Radio. Um, it's important for us, just for this one day across the entire program day, to ask you to do your best to help continue our program and keep it moving forward. I know many of you out there who listen to Political Rewind have already become donors, and we're grateful to you for that. You're the ones who support this program. And uh, if we don't have that support, we're not going to be on the air very long. A couple of times during our show today, we're going to send you to a couple of people who can tell you how you can help us out. And here they are. 
Emory University's Fred Smith, University of Georgia's Audrey Haynes, and Jim Galloway joined me uh, for the show today. Uh, Jim, I said I want to talk just a couple more minutes about the political implications of this federal trial that starts today. Uh, the Secretary of State's office, of course, has responded to these allegations uh, in court, but they've also talked to the media about it. Uh, here's what Brad Raffensperger has to say about these, uh, this lawsuit. Almost all of Abrams' claims have already been dismissed. The remaining ones are nowhere close to what she alleged in her non-concession speech after the 2018 election. This is quoting Raffensperger. Her three-year stolen election campaign has been nothing more than a political stunt to keep her in the national spotlight, and it's a disservice to voters. So, uh, Jim, it is fascinating, as you put this in the political context of the upcoming election, um, Stacey Abrams has avoided in her campaign so far talking about the uh, big lie of the Trump uh, uh, people, Trump himself, and those on the Georgia ballot on the Republican side who are perpetuating the big lie theory. Um, And maybe one of the reasons is she could be, you know, this is how Republicans come back at her. You wouldn't concede in 2018 either, and this trial sort of reminds people of that. Yeah, yeah. It's it, there's a, there's a there's a a, a kind of a, a an instinctive uh, tendency among Republicans to connect these two to say that to, to conflate the Trumps Trumps uh, Trumps actions after uh, his defeat were are, are were were no no worse or no different than what abrams were it, it, it number number one uh she acknowledged that she had lost that defeat i think within 10 days uh after after exhausting all her legal appeals she did not call for she did not call for uh, the legislature to overturn anything she did was not uh, seeking to to trash trash the votes of of people who did not vote for her or or those who did uh, I, I but but i think this is this lawsuit is is in fact central to her campaign, even though she uh, she may not be ready to, to 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 draw this. You're gonna you'll recall back in uh, back I think it was 2019, uh, she was under a great deal of pressure to run for the U.S. Senate. Uh, uh, Chuck mm-hmm. Schumer was 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 just knocking on her door uh, uh, almost every hour just to get her into into that contest. And she refused, in part because she wanted to run for governor, I'm sure, but also because she she saw uh, she saw uh, the voting issue as central to the future of the 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 Democratic Party uh, in yeah. Georgia. Um, yeah, Fred, I want to be clear. Uh, this is how Republicans will come back at Stacey Abrams. Uh, Jim, Gall- Everything Jim Galloway just said, Fred, is absolutely correct. Abrams did say she knew she hadn't won the election. She felt that uh, there, there were uh, efforts to suppress the black vote and it prevented her from winning. But to compare what she tried to do with what the Trumpers are doing is, is, is simply uh, fallacious thinking, Fred. Yeah, no, I don't see. I don't think the analogy exactly works. Um, but I, you know, I do think from a political standpoint, this puts uh, Raffensperger in a place where he really would like to be going into his primary. Yeah. Um, that uh, that he's in a position to, uh, you know, to attack the um, the front runner and really kind of the you know, the presumptive Democratic uh, nominee. Um, and and given that you know, his his potential. Weaknesses because he didn't give in uh, to Donald Trump, uh, and in fact, appears to be have been something of a whistleblower when it came to some of the actions uh, of Donald Trump. Um, 
you know, instead of people kind of thinking about that, instead, perhaps they'll be thinking about his battle um, with uh, with Stacey Abrams, where he is the named uh, the named defendant. And so that might explain some of the um, the, the level of the rhetoric uh, to some extent um, that you're seeing from from that uh, from that office. Audrey. Well- Well, I've always liked to add a little context. I'll just add that when Raffensperger came into office and along with all of the people that came in with him and worked with him, you know, they had a big campaign called Secure the Vote because they were going to introduce all of those new voting machines with, you know, the voting receipt. It was a big part of who they were as an office at the time to demonstrate that they were going to have, you know, free, fair and secure elections. And they did a big campaign about that. And the people in that office probably think that they have been very responsive, probably far more so than prior Secretary of State offices. And so when you actually go through and read the transcript and you, um, you know, you look at some of the content in the briefs from this case, you'll see a lot of them talking about, you know, this is something we need to do better or, you know, this is an internal thing that we need to address, especially the training of people who work in the county boards of elections. And I'm just going to say we Throughout the United States, we have a very decentralized, very decentralized election system. You know, states do all kinds of different things. And I've looked at a lot of those ballots, um, the ballot envelopes, not the ballots. Let me make sure I haven't looked at any ballots. And you can see (laughs) a great deal of variation across um, counties, even applying the law. If you actually read the laws about what they're supposed to do with absentee ballots, And the Secretary of State's office has always struggled with their ability to, you know, in any way, shape or form, force counties to do certain things. I mean, I will just say we're involved in a research project and um, just asking the counties to give um, the Secretary of State's office, you know, copies of the outside of envelopes has actually involved some, you know, court proceedings because, you know, Counties operate independently. There are some things that they have to do, but, you know, it's actually pretty complicated. And in the new state law, I, would, I want to make one more point. In the new state laws that deal with election reform to secure the vote, you know, you don't really see anything in terms of making it easier for people to vote, except for maybe that, you know, state holiday. And in this case, they're getting down to the nitty-gritty about areas that really need improvement. What would be nice? is if you could get everybody together on the same page and actually work on this so that the public actually does have elections that they can um, engage in with ease, that they know are safe and secure. Well, yeah, Fred. <laughs> no, I, I 100% agree. I mean, this is a, it's, when you read these facts, right, uh, it does cry out for a consent decree of the sorts that, um, that sometimes occur uh, when people identify really real issues. Um, and you know, given that in the past, when the state has entered into, um, when, when they've settled various claims and entered into consent decrees, um, they've sometimes, in, more, in recent years, they've gotten in some trouble with their base. It becomes a basis for attack. Look, you're negotiating with Stacey Abrams and the like. Um, and that may be where we are right now, where, um, where even if we kind of are to some of the issues where, um, where there could be some room for agreement, we're in a political environment um, that makes that very difficult, um, and and that's and so you're you're kind of seeing this go all the way uh, to trial as opposed to kind of having some of these issues um, get settled at an earlier stage. Um, Jim, one last note on this before we move on. Audrey's already alluded to uh, Judge Steve Jones, and it does seem 
He's handled this case for quite some time now. There have been any number of motions it presented to him. Uh, last year, he dismissed some of the uh, uh, lawsuit that Fair Fight had brought, um, including that there were inadequate, there was inadequate poll worker uh, training, too few machines in some polling places and the like, although the uh, poll worker training could come back in, in this suit again. But the, the reason I say all that is to say, Jim, it feels like we've got a judge overseeing this case who is about as straight down the middle and thoughtful as we could ask for in an important lawsuit like this. Right, right, and 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 again, it's a single judge, so you're going to have a a, a fairly quick decision, I think. Uh, you know, it's it's this is this issue is 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 you know like that the old adage of a of a river. You 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 never step into the same river twice because the water's all always flown. It's all uh, flowed. It's all always different. One other thing I would bring to uh, bring to this is the 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 latest election uh, by the state legislature. Uh, the the, legis- the the election law that that uh, new election changes that did pass that that uh, gave the GBI original jurisdiction over election fraud, and 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 this gets at maybe what of what uh, why why uh, Raffensperger is talking so stuff uh, tough because originally uh, he had he had the jurisdiction over over election fraud cases now it's the GBI the GBI reports to the governor it's part of the executive mm. branch so. In, in in 2018, you had Brian Kemp, Secretary of State, overseeing uh, uh, what he thought was a re- election fraud. You c- now you will have Governor Kemp uh, overseeing uh, over overseeing the process and and maybe uh, maybe urging the GBI in here and there. Um, all right, uh, I, I, Audrey, go ahead, weigh in. Uh, you're muted, Audrey. Sorry, um, it's the cold. Um, one thing, Governor Kemp sort of has provided, um, presided over one big election fraud where he didn't flip the election because Donald Trump told him. So that's a positive indicator for him. The other thing I want to say is um, Judge Steve Jones is a double dog, uh, undergraduate and law school degree from the University of Georgia. <laughs> yeah. and, and as and as, an, as a fellow native of Athens, yes, I, I am also. I'm enjoying very much all of the Steve Jones praise, which is well deserved. Uh, these opinions are very careful, and uh, and it makes the case for. Uh, that, that's why he's there because <laughs> he is so thoughtful and is so careful uh, and is so down the middle. Um, but I, um, back to the politics of it, I do just want to say quickly that uh, that interestingly, Stacey Abrams, at least so far, has not made voting rights the center of her campaign going forward. It's very much about Medicaid expansion, um, which is an issue that she's able to attempt to connect to all sorts of other issues when it comes to resources and what's possible um, if the state were to expand Medicaid. And that's, that's, where, um, that's where her focus is, even as this, uh, this suit from four years ago um, reaches, uh, reaches trial. Well, part of it is, of course, that talk, focusing on health care is, is a universal uh, topic that people, both parties, can uh, uh, possibly be engaged with. Whereas if you start talking about election fraud and that sort of thing, you're likely only reaching your Democratic base, and that's not as helpful in the general election, I suspect. All right, let's do this. Uh, I want to talk about uh, Judge Katanji uh, Brown-Jackson and what her uh, uh, finally being approved for the court is going to mean for the court coming up. We're going to take our final pledge break of the show right now and then do that. Um, 
real quickly, what I want to say about this is um, we are going into, we're about eight years into Political Rewind, and I want to tell you one quick story about that. When I worked in TV news, as I did for 35 years, and I did political stories, I was lucky if I had three minutes to try to tell a story in the newscast, um, t- often taking complicated issues, trying to reduce them to their most basic uh, uh, form. And that was fine. But on Political Rewind, the luxury of having virtually an hour, five days a week with smart people like Audrey Haynes, Fred Smith, and Jim Galloway is one of the greatest joys of my professional life. And you all out there are the reason we're able to do it. So please, if you're a supporter, I hope you'll keep it up. And if you're not, here's how you can join us now. Fred Smith, um, so much attention was justifiably focused on the fact that during the confirmation hearings, during her nomination by the president, and then during the confirmation hearings, that um, Ketanji Brown-Jackson would become the first African-American woman to serve on the court. That another interesting aspect of this, I think, maybe got lost. I hadn't even thought about it until I started reading about it this weekend. For the first time in its history, um, white men will no longer be in the majority of the United States Supreme Court. Which it, 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 So there are a couple of really interesting things to look at here. Also, we're moving towards younger justices, um, Gen X justices. So, Fred, as a starting point, take on any of those. We know that she's not going to change the ideological balance of the court. But to what extent do you believe that when she takes her seat, um, all of those factors might have at least some interesting uh, resonance on how the court uh, works? Sure. Um, well, it's certainly the case that, uh, you know, Justice Ginsburg used to say that, you know, having one or two women is, that's not, that's not parody. Um, and she even would quip, you know, she wants there to be a day where there's all nine. Uh, but, uh, you know, but, but, you know but we certainly are moving uh, closer to, uh, to parody. I mean, so you do have this interesting dynamic now where um, every justice that we would associate with the left right now, uh, moving forward, beginning this summer, um, will be a woman. Um, and uh, that dynamic, though, is blunted a bit by the fact that there now is um, a woman conservative also who's, uh, who is on the court. And so um, in the absence of Justice Barrett, um, there would be this very kind of stark uh, contrast that you would see kind of, you know, in, in opinions, because you would see these six, three opinions and and the, and the three women would be the dissenters. And you're still going to see that, but at least, um, you know, that dynamic um, will look a little less sharp, um, given that there's some gender diversity, not, um, you know, not, not much, but some gender diversity among the conservative justices. Yeah, um, Audrey, I think what Fred said is important. Uh, uh, Justice Barrett clearly is, I I think, out of the uh, mainstream in terms of polling uh, about how women view issues that that come before the court, Uh, certainly abortion uh, being a key one. Of course, that will be decided by the time uh, uh, we we have a change in the court. But, But why don't you weigh in on all this, Audrey? Well, you know, I would um, I would suggest I would like to quote Andra Gillespie, Dr. Gillespie. And, you know, when she talks about women and their attitudes, certainly uh, being much more varied and not to treat them as a monolith. And that's true. I mean, if you look at the um, 
diversity on the court with Justice Alito and, and Justice Thomas, too. Those are both very conservative individuals. So in some ways, you know, you have a, a, a great deal of variation and change. I think the younger, um, the younger uh, Gen X uh, dimension is pretty interesting. And, you know, I have the sense, too, that we're going to see some dynamics we not, might not have predicted. I would say that it's very difficult to predict how a justice is going to vote. We have all kinds of cases in history where someone who's appointed by a conservative judge ended up being doing things or, you know, uh, promoting, um, you know, uh, uh, legal views that were very different from what was expected. I mean, no one expected Gorsuch to be the person who would protect the LGBTQ community um, from employment discrimination. And certainly no one expected or Warren to um, be a solid civil rights advocate. So, you know, who knows? I would say, though, that um, with uh, Judge Jackson now, we're probably going to see her unique perspective. And, you know, she's been a, a, a trial judge, a district judge. And a lot of what was said during the, um, the hearing, which was horrible and abysmal and, and terrible, uh, the worst I've ever seen, made all of these accusations about judicial activism and, and her record on judicial activism. And really, it's, it's flip-flopped. We're seeing a lot more activism from um, conservative judges as opposed to more moderate or liberal judges. So again, I would say I can't predict, but I think we're going to see some interesting things. And I think the court is going to work to push up against some of the hyperpolarization that we're seeing. You know, maybe Justice Roberts is going to be doing more to kind of, you know, continue to bring the court into focus uh, and, and, and less on the politics. Uh, Jim, um, uh, let me throw this in for, uh, for, for you, Jim, and, and then comment as you will. Gallup's most recent poll, which was last fall, but, but it's still relevant, uh, showed that only 40% of Americans approve the job the Supreme Court is doing. That's down from 58% just a year Earlier, and of course, a lot of that has to do with the partisan toxicity uh, that we're seeing in the nominating proceedings. Let's just listen quickly to Lindsey Graham, who had some pretty outrageous antics during the confirmation hearings, and now is running a spot on TV uh, attacking uh, the newest Supreme Court justice. In the last several years, we've had three Supreme Court hearings. The game has changed. Remember Amy Comey Barrett, how they came after her? Remember Kavanaugh? I do. To compare that hearing with what happened to Judge Jackson is ridiculous. She wasn't ambushed. I asked her hard questions, and she gave bad answers. I voted no to Judge Jackson, and now I understand why the radical left wanted her so badly. She's a judicial activist. She gets the outcomes she wants, no matter how the law is written. When it comes to crime, her record is very, very dangerous. Jim, thank you for letting me play that, but it's going to contribute to this lack of uh, of confidence in the Supreme Court. Right, and and and, and look, these these hearings are clearly a re, uh, they they they've truly wrapped the court in this in in, in the this uh, this kind of uh, polarization blanket uh, that we've thrown over the whole country. And and that is something that, you, uh, as as Audrey said, you've seen uh, Chief Justice uh, John Roberts uh, talk about. I, I, but I do want to throw in here that there's more than gender uh, to 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 uh, uh, to to Jackson's appointment, uh, and and that is the fact that she's a public defender. 
you know, I wanted to st- one of one of the one of the, the statistics that just amazes me is that there have only been three defense attorneys on the Supreme Court ever: Thurgood Marshall, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and now Jackson. Uh, and 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 Jackson was actually more of one because she was a public defense uh, defender. Fred, if if I could t- toss a question to Fred here, uh, okay, we know that she's not going to she's not uh, Jackson is not going to t- take her seat until uh, after the current term ends, and 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 uh, and 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 her her predecessor uh, officially pulls out. What's waiting for her next October as an issue? As are there any, are there any issues that are already on the table that we can see coming that where where, where she she might have an impact? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, there's so much to impact. So first, on the I mean, I, I agree that a really important dimension of her nomination is that she is a public defender, uh, and that that particular barrier uh, has been broken. Uh, it's. I think historically, it's much easier to nominate prosecutors. They're just, it's, they're they're easier to confirm for lots of reasons, um, and uh, and so this is an important perspective. And Justice Sotomayor, who's a former prosecutor, has often said that it would be really important to have that perspective on the bench. Um, and Justice Sotomayor is the only other person who is on the Supreme Court who served as a district court judge. Um, you kind of have to check all the boxes <laughs> to, uh, to, uh, when you're in the position of a Justice Sotomayor or a Justice Jackson. And, uh, both, both of them did. Uh, on the... Uh, on the question, actually, now I forgot what you asked me, Jim. Just uh, is, is there what anything coming cases? up in October? Oh, sure. So, uh, you know, one of the biggest cases next year is uh, is on affirmative action, but she won't actually be able to rule, at least on the Harvard. Uh, or she said she's going to recuse herself from the Harvard case, um, and that's because she has served on the she serves on the board of Harvard. Uh, so she's uh, she's recused from from that one. She may be able to rule on the University of North Carolina case, though, because she doesn't serve on the board there. Um, and so, you know, I mean, her perspective on that case will be uh, will be important. You know, I'm not sure that we're done with abortion. It much depends on what happens with the Dobbs case. Um, and so that's something to keep an, uh, an eye on as well. Yeah, Audrey, uh, we are expecting, of course, in mid-June to hear what the court's going to do with a Mississippi abortion case, where, of course, Mississippi said, we specifically are coming to you asking you not to rule just on our 15-week ban on abortions, but on whether Roe, in fact, is constitutional, Audrey. Well, I'm going to uh, preface this by saying that I am not someone who is as well-versed in the Supreme Court and its decision-making, but I know that from a political standpoint and from the standpoint of um, public opinion, there's a lot of worry and concern across uh, groups that um, advocate in this issue about what that outcome is going to be. And I think there is a lot of question about the nature of that decision. And, you know, we have a court that you know, basically has a 6-3 conservative majority. So I think there are people who are really worried about what the outcome will mean for um, women's reproductive rights across the country. So, Fred, what does it mean that we won't be done with it, depending on how the court rules in June? Um, so, you know, if they were to rule that this particular law is constitutional, but that Roe uh, is still the law of the land, then you'll have things that are short of 14 weeks. And the question will be, does, was this a sufficient opportunity or was it 12 weeks or 10 weeks or, 
you know, or, you know, six weeks, which seems uh, highly implausible that that would be a meaningful opportunity for, for someone to, to choose. But you're going to see some questions around that if they were to go in that direction. Um, you know, now, if they go, if they just entirely overrule Roe, then there's kind of less to say, right? They'll have a lot of cases that they'll just be able to kind of send back to the uh, to the lower courts. Um, but uh, but yeah, but, but you know, more over whether they overturn Roe or if they do something short of that, there's still going to be um, a lot of legal questions. But the, there will be more legal questions if they uphold Roe um, while also upholding the Mississippi law. It's going to create a lot of question marks about what laws still stand. Fred, we're, we're getting to be short on time, but I want to see if I can ask you one more question. And I do this partly is given that you, in fact, yourself were a, a, a clerk in, in the United States Supreme Court. The 19th had an interesting article suggesting that even though the progressives on the court remain in the minority, having an African-American woman, having a majority of women now on the court, even though they're not going to win right now, they may, in their dissenting opinions, lay groundwork that later courts might take up and make significant use of. Does that re- resonate with you? Sure. Well, first, so it's now there's four women, so there's not there's not quite five. It's not quite a majority. Um, oh, that's right. I'm but, sorry. Thank you. But the but on the on the question of yeah, can you make a mark when you are in the minority on the court? The answer is absolutely. There's all kinds of ways. Um, and you describe one of them, right? That you your today's dissents may be tomorrow's majority opinions. But even short of that. Um, sometimes, you know, in the background, there's justices writing dissents um, that cause the majority to reshape their opinions, right? So to write something softer or even sometimes change their minds. Um, and, you know, there uh, you know, there's scholars who have written recent books about the Supreme Court that have shown how justices like Justice Sotomayor, sometimes her dissents have caused the majority to actually entirely reshape what they were going to do. So, um so it's not just that final product. Uh, it, it, you can make a difference even if you're in the minority. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show. Um, Fred Smith and Audrey Haynes, thank you both so very much for uh, being with us. We didn't get to Herschel Walker today, and we will take that up tomorrow. Uh, interesting the way the Republican debate took place on Saturday. And as he promised, he didn't show up for it. We'll talk about the implications of that, what the other candidates had to say about it. Jim Galloway, I left you for last because as we go to this last pledge break of the day and for quite a while on Political Rewind, I want to remind people in our almost eight years on the air, Jim Galloway was panelist number one. And we have been very lucky to have had him with us for the entire time we're there. Jim, take a bow. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much, Bill. It has been entirely my pleasure. I have gotten, uh, I've met so many great new people just by just by showing up every Monday. Well, I thank you for saying uh, uh, that because I feel the same way about the people I've gotten to know on this show. All right, we're really out of time because I have to send it back to the folks who are going to tell you how you can join us on Political Rewind and make this show continue its uh, successful run. Fred Smith, Audrey Haynes, Jim Galloway, thanks again. I'll see you again tomorrow. Take care, stay healthy. Here's how you can help. 